Welcome back to part two of Corporate Greed, Enron. Last time we talked about Dr. Lay and Enron's start and the role fraud played in Enron since the beginning. We talked about skilling and his introduction of mark-to-market accounting in Enron's business model and how Enron's huge amount of debt and skilling's attempts at a big enchilada to clear that debt always got them chasing the next big thing. Here we are for part two, where we're going to get into even more shady and downright illegal business practices that led to Enron's fast, catastrophic downfall. Hello, everyone. Thanks for stopping by our table of disappointment. This is How They Got Away, the show where we discuss the unsatisfying endings to your favorite unsolved or unpunished true crime and corporate greed stories. I am your host once again today, Kelsey, with my co-host... Annalise, who's ready to hear about the financial downfall of this company. And Anna, who was not here for part one, so this is going to be interesting for you, Yippee! Anna. Uh, I get to learn a lot of things. I think I was here for... Nope, I don't remember the last time I was here, other than the Texas part two, and maybe part one, but it all blurs together at this point. Um, Hello, everyone. So glad to be back. This is a re-recording, so it's not like Anna is completely in the dark, but it is a little bit of a, oh, what do I remember from the last time? <laughs> and there's so much in here. There's so much complicated stuff that happens there. So where we last left off was... Uh, the big enchilada part two with broadband, in which they partnered with Blockbuster, and we all know how well that went. And we also learned about executives at Enron selling their stocks, all while telling employees to continue investing in Enron. And all the while, CFO Fasto had been working harder and harder to hide what was now billions of dollars in bad debt. So, Lay, our good old Lay, hated confrontation. So he would lie to tell to employees rather than tell them hard. He hated to disappoint people. And I mean, on a certain level, I didn't get it, but also you're a CEO. Yeah. And it's very two-faced to have such a aggressive, like, internal company, but then be like, oh, I don't want to disappoint anybody. For real. So people picked up on this and realized that they could kind of just browbeat him into doing what they wanted because they knew he wouldn't want to say no. And the thing with it also is that everybody knew that Kinder was really in charge and not Lay. But you could, since Lay was still sort of in charge, you could kind of get him to get Kinder to do some things for you. And Kinder seemed to be more or less fine with the arrangement of not being CEO but essentially being CEO running the company for a while but eventually he wanted to be CEO in name as well as in practice you know he's doing all the work he should get the pay and also the title understandable I think at first it was probably like okay so I get to pull the strings but then I'm not the ultimate like face of the company fall guy but then it's like okay I am doing all of this work and it does kind of even out. <laughs> the cost benefit shift. He, he reevaluated. Exactly. I think also with Lay still kind of being in the mix, I think Lay was, I don't know if it was purposeful or not, but was kind of undermining some Kinder at some yeah. point. I mean, people knew to go to Lay because he would crumble and then Kinder would have to do something. Exactly. 
So Lay promised Kinder that he would step down as CEO in the early 90s. But then he kind of changed his mind. I think he was like, oh, no, we're, you know, we're doing all these things with the big enchilada. You know, I've, I've really just got to be here. And so he stayed on a little bit longer. I hate how it's called the big enchilada. I hate it. I hate that. I hate it. <laughs> the big enchilada. Okay. Uh, and then <laughs> Lay promised Kinder again that he would step down at the end of 1996. But uh, Lay again changed his mind. And he changed his mind like, like, Didn't late, he? Late. Well, he had no intention last time. He was just kind of pushing it off, right? In the early 90s, I definitely think he had no intention of putting off. I don't know about 1996. I don't know if he thought something was going to happen at the end of 1996 and it didn't, or if he or kinder tried to get like a more specific date out of him and he just threw 1996 end of the year out there uh in november of 1996 by the time the like things should really be in motion to switch over to the new ceo uh late told kinder that it was the board that had decided against making him ceo not let because Lay could never be the person to disappoint people. It cannot be that Lay just didn't want to be to let go of being CEO. No, no, no. And Kinder, Kinder has worked for him and with him for years. He knew this was bullshit. And so by the end of that month, so by the end of November, Lay accepted another five-year term as CEO. And Kinder announced that he was leaving the company. Yeah, at that point, it's like, okay, I'm done with this bullshit. Yeah, it was. So Lay tells him, I'm not sure what point in 1996 he told him by the end of the year, but it had been in, in months in the works of like, yeah, 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 you'll be CEO, we'll get all the things in motion, I'll talk to the board, you know, it's a shoe in, you're already here, you know, yada, yada, yada. And then I think privately, it was like, you know, the board, they just. Mm, you know they that's not the direction they want to go in and then in a public meeting with the board and accepted a five-year term as ceo again and then kinder was like i'm out i'm out e500 i think kinder started looking as soon as lay made it clear to him that you know it wasn't gonna happen And then Lay would reward himself for accepting another five-year term with a raise and more stock options. Because it's his company. He can do what he wants. And he deserves it. He deserves it. Because he was totally doing all that work before and was not just hiding behind someone who was actually doing the work. Mm-hmm. Kinder used the sale of his Enron company stocks to build his own multi-million dollar company. And honestly, good for you, Kinder. You don't want to be CEO of this bullshit. Yet, honestly, Kinder got out at a great time and stayed out. And really avoided a lot of the downfall that we are going to see in the next years. Mm. So, Kinder left. Leia's CEO still. But Kinder was the one really doing the work. So there kind of was left this power vacuum and skilling. Oh, he's like a shark with blood in the water, baby. He senses the power is up for grabs. And he wants he wants it. Power vacuum. I'm ready. Exactly. So Skilly wanted Kinder's old job and wanted it so bad that he went over to Lay and threatened to quit and take his entire department with him 
if Lay did not give him the chief operating officer and president positions. Like, and of course, Lay, as always, crumbles when confronted, right? Well, Lay kind of flip-flops. Oh, that's also a classic of him, not to say no, but also to... Exactly. He doesn't want to disappoint Skilling, and he definitely doesn't want him to quit and take the whole department with him. He doesn't want to give up control, and he doesn't want to... But he doesn't want to disappoint Skilling, but he doesn't want to give up control. So, you know, he... Kind of like with Kinder, he kind of promised him the job and backpedaled a few times, but eventually... Skilling got the job, and the funny thing about it is, Skilling wanted the job. He wants, like, be on, he's, be on the executive board, have that kind of power, but also, more important, he did not want other executives to have it. Because that's, like, we're not a, like, that's a very healthy uh, attitude to have about people at your company. Like, not, we're all working as a team for the betterment of this company. No? My wedding on the highway. Skilling is literally that TikTok sound. My way. My way or the highway. <laughs> My way. My Clay way. did eventually capitulate to his money maker. Skilling was given the job. I want to say that I do imagine that Lay has the spine of like an al dente noodle. Yeah, like, you know, it's not totally floppy but you know it'll crumble with a little bit of pressure yeah exactly you picked up what i was putting down i know i know my al dente noodles skilling then almost immediately upon taking these positions jettisoned the entire enron oil and gas department because it wasn't a trading division his justification was that he wanted to move enron more trading side of the industry than the actual production and distribution of oil and gas. That was his official reasoning. But privately, it was because he didn't like the CEO. And upon getting rid of that CEO, had effectively consolidated his power at Enron. All the other executives would pretty much toe the line when it came to Skilling. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and Skilling is still very hyper-focused on growth. And by the late 90s, Enron was the seventh largest company in america but again if those of us who remember from last episode it was all because of this mark market accounting basically lie anna for you mark to market accounting is a method of measuring the fair value of accounts that can fluctuate over time such as assets liability things like property stock value things like that and it is meant to give an accurate appraisal of a company's financial situation but it had never been used in uh, energy before, which is what Enron was doing. So it basically kind of meant you they could write down whatever they wanted because you can't actually accurately calculate the price of gas in like 10, 20 years. They could just kind of say whatever. They went, ooh, I think we're going to be doing super extremely mm -hmm. well mm -hmm. and have really, really great deals. That we won't follow through on later, and that'll be our... Yep. We won't actually get exactly. those numbers, and that'll be our downfall later, because we're just making up bullshit. So after all that flip-flopping and positions changing hands, Lay is still the CEO, so he never actually gave up that position. And Skilling is 
now what Kinder was. He's the de facto leader, he's the COO, and the president. Same thing happening round two. Mm -hmm. Except Kinder was the only one who actually knew what he was doing in any sort of legitimate sense. So now it's just a fraudster in charge. So Skilling believed, and this is such a financial dude bro thing, he believed that greed was the only true human motivator. Telling us a little bit about yourself, buddy. And created a cutthroat work environment to encourage greed and thus, in his mind, motivation and innovation. Because he's like, competition is everything. Everything. Forget teamwork makes the dream work. I don't care that it rhymes. It's not true. So he would intentionally discourage teamwork and promoted conflict, thinking that this would lead to big ideas. That's, you know, where all of this is headed. Sounds great. Sounds like a place I'd want to work for sure. Awooga. So throughout the company, credit stealing was common. Orders would be ignored from superiors. And this behavior would be rewarded as long as it made money or appeared to make money. Because again, mark to market accounting. It's all just a fantasy, baby. It's all a fantasy. And because Enron is a trading company, stock price is everything. Employees were heavily encouraged to put all of their 401k into Enron stock because if people are people are buying the stock, it makes it look good, even if it's within the company, which seems like a conflict of interest to me, but okay. That is such an alpha dude bro male thing. To go back to Skilling's greed is the only human motivator thing, he was obsessed with this book called The Selfish Gene, which states the theory that humanity as a species has progressed as a result of greed and competition. So he implemented a survival of the fittest mentality at Enron. And I love this selfish change like It is. And I feel like it goes against every understanding we have about anthropology today. I don't know what I'm gonna be honest, I don't know what like understandings were at the time, but like nowadays I think we they generally understand, it's generally understood that society progressed and developed because people took care of one another. I know that's crazy, Gilly. Kind of how it works, though. It's crazy, but society as a whole. Guess what? Like the establishment of communities. Oh my god, people coming together? Do you know what's crazy? Society as a whole actually does better when we all you know somebody is like in somebody's head the communist anthem is playing like community is that how we work together so yeah skilling believed that money is the only true motivator and he implemented this prc or performance review committee system also colloquially known as a rank and yank sounds Right. I would love to work at this company. Rankin Yank. What this was, was a semi-annual performance review system where everyone got a rank from one to five. One being the best earning. Notice again the focus on earning, not performance. Earning. Because that was the only thing that mattered. And then one would also, a one would also get you a huge bonus. Getting a five meant that you were fired. Immediately. And this is just 
firing 10% of your company constantly. Exactly. That was entirely the point. This was done on a curve. So 10% of employees would be fired with fives every single time. So every six months, they are firing 10% of the company. And you have to wonder, given what we've talked about in the previous episode, where they don't really actually have that much real concrete money on hand to maintain offices and pay paychecks, you have to wonder if it is a method of hiding that. Because sure, they would have to pay people a severance, but that's a lot cheaper than a consistent paycheck have to wonder if there's a connection there. And the only people that are staying now are people who are like ingrained in yeah, the system. This, this became like a whole kind of a cult thing. It's it benefiting is. them. And people people on the outside, for the most part at this point, are thinking, Enron has to be a great company to work for if they're so successful. That's going to be such a stepping stone in your career. Like, there's this echo chamber of like, Enron is so great. You're so lucky to work here. You know, all of this. And then within the company, there's this toxic cutthroat environment of like encouraging you to undercut your fellow coworkers and do whatever it has to be done to get the numbers on the book. Even if, again, there is no actual money changing hands. This competition system and the cult mentality that it kind of made spread throughout the entire company, as well as Skilling's methods, especially after he became COO and president. And Skilling after he became COO and president, kind of pulled an Elon. And what I mean by that is he got his hair filled in. He got hair plugged and he got LASIK eye surgery and he started working out. And kind of like if you've ever seen a picture of Enra of Elon before he got uh, really successful and famous, he's like kind of balding. He's kind of pale skin. He looks like a normal computer geek. He looks like a computer geek. And nowadays he has his hair filled in. I think he's like, he's 50, 60, and he's got like the hair of a 20 year old. Cause he went very normal, mm, Elon. Very normal. My natural born gifts have allowed me to now enhance them. Oh, yeah. By becoming more fake. <laughs> I mean, I'll get it. If I made billions of dollars a year, you would catch me without a full head of hair. That's for Sure. I mean, sure. I mean, true. Yes, but it's so funny how this guy's like. Well, I guess he's also like so, his real thing is selfishness. It's not necessarily natural born talent. It is selfishness. Exactly. <laughs> He'll pass it off as his talents. Don't you worry. He'll be like, I have the power to do that, and it's like you only have the power because you got money because daddy decided to give you a good amount. He gave you a small loan of a million dollars. Anyways, I don't know. Like. Mm. He's got, like, quartz crystals on his desk at work. Imagine if this guy was into manifesting, and he just manifested his way to the top. <laughs> my daddy gave me these pretty little rocks, and now my, like, he'll probably do some weird shit, be like, um, I don't believe in the crystal energy, but they are giving me tons of money, so maybe they do work for me. And everyone's like, that's a real cool. Actually, um, Kelsey or Annalise, I think Kelsey might know about this more than I do, because I know you have rocks. Um, is there a rock that's like, hey, give me money? <laughs> I was gonna say rose quartz for like shit and giggles to yes. make it wrong, but I'm like, what if that actually is for money? So I don't know. Uh uh citrine is a good money crystal. Okay, okay, but like imagine if he's like also just like he's a rich guy who's really into minimalism, and by minimalism I mean he has a giant ass mansion with a ton of shit, but it's spread out enough to look like minimal. God. I suspect so many celebrities are non-minimalists. They just have too much space. 
God. I want a big empty house so I can fill it with stuff. <sighs> okay. We gotta be normal. Okay, no we're more reeling it back. We're reeling it back. We're normal. We're regular. There is no war in <laughs> boxing, say. We'll get to that later. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, for skilling, there is an end, Elon. There is a clear connection between his image and his success. He wants to be as a success, so he makes himself look the part. And you get it. Like, he's giving talks. He's a very public figure. You can kind of understand wanting to present a very professional, put-together image. You can see that. But he also, and he was, it's funny that you say he's kind of like an alpha because, yeah. Not even, like, before people said, I'm an alpha, he was an alpha. Uh, obsessed with risk-taking, which makes sense. He's in the trading business, so that's, just, that's essentially gambling a little bit. But also, he was very into thrill-seeking and would participate in dangerous activities like dirt bike racing. Not like, you know, he kind of knew what he was doing. Like, he knew how to ride a dirt bike, but he would also do, like, tricks and stuff that, like, you need years of practice to really do successfully. So it's a choice to do that as somebody who works at a desk all day. I mean, yeah, he had started working out, but also, like, I don't I don't know that you had to do this, really. Maybe fucked out. He would do these legendary trips with Enron executives and customers, which I feel like, you know, you've seen these trips in, like, movies before where, like, the evil CEO is, like, out golfing in the Bahamas or something with this private jet and, like, three or four of his, like, best yes men. These, it's these successful men trying to prove they're super macho by taking really stupid risks. It's like, oh, I'm so macho that I am almost going to get myself killed and maybe get severely injured. But if I make this and don't get injured, I am the alpha now. It's why men get a lower mortality rate. You mean a Not higher really. mortality rate? Higher. Sorry, I keep forgetting which one it is. I just know it has to do with mortality. Yeah. Whoopsies. One guy flipped a, a jeep and was nearly killed being pinned under it. Like, these oh. are businessmen. They do not, they're not stuntmen. They don't know how to do these things safely. And people got hurt doing this. One guy busts his lip and flips. That's what a One weird guy little busted fight. his lip and had to get stitches on his trips. He's like, not, these don't sound like fun trips. I, and it's, people broke bones over the course of several different trips was not an uncommon thing to happen for these trips but they're like hey boss look at me look at me look what i'm doing for you I, am i entertaining enough it's all about normalizing the extreme risk in with your life with money and with your career a behavior pattern we see at enron so andy Fasto, i had mentioned a couple times he is the chief financial officer. He became chief financial officer at 36 and was responsible for keeping the company hitting its profit targets. But Skilling kind of did this thing where he would uh, look at the what profit they needed to make for the year to keep their stock rising and then would just kind of try to make the company make that amount. Which, of course, because capitalism was increasingly higher and higher profits, which were not fiscally possible so what that meant was Andy's job mostly involved hiding bad debt and bad deals from their investors 
and manipulating the accounts to fool Wall Street. He also hid Enron's debt by doing the same. He created hundreds of companies to hide Enron's debt in, so it couldn't be seen by investors. So what he would do is he would make companies and then kind of just move the debt from Enron's accounts into their accounts. So when investors and anal financial analysts would look into Enron to see if their stock was worth what it said they said it was, they what they would do whenever they did this with companies is look at what kind of debt they had, what kind of profits they were looking at to kind of determine, you know, their growth for the year and if their price stock was worth what they were selling it as. And so if he moved all the debt to another company, Enron doesn't have this debt. Enron has all these profits, just profits, no debt. So that kept their stock price up. This is also illegal. It's just a little scapegoat company. It's fine. It's fine. But, you know, you can move the debt, but you still have the debt. And people will be looking to collect. So Festo set up this private equity fund, LJM, which would act as a slush fund open only to favored employees. A slush fund is a fund or account used for miscellaneous income and expenses, particularly when they are corrupt or illegal. So when somebody is talking about a slush fund, it is not, it's something that's sketchy, by its nature is sketchy. It is a fun name though. I'm thinking of a 7-Eleven slushy. Mm. <laughs> so what this would do is uh, Enron assets were sold to this fund to raise money for the company to hide debt. So they would sell Enron's assets to this slush fund, which is dubious at best, illegal at worst. And then they could use that those funds to hide their debt, pay their debt, things like that. Enron, uh, not Enron. Sasto was put in charge of this private equity fund, which is a huge conflict of interest because he was also on the executive board of Enron. Uh, the board didn't see an issue with this and voted unanimously to exempt Sasto from the company's code of ethics and gave him authority over the fund. If you need to unanimously vote to exempt a person from your code of ethics, you are doing something bad. It really doesn't matter what it is. Mm -hmm. That's a big red flag. Go. That is a cinnamon red flag. And of course, Fasto would use his position to make sure that the deals between Enron and this fund had a little something, something in it for himself. That's a big hint. And through this, he lined his pockets with tens of millions of Enron's money. Oh, he's stealing. It's important to note at this point that Arthur Anderson Accounting LLP, which was one of the major accounting firms used by corporations at the time, was a client, or Enron was a client of them, saw this, saw something was wrought. Well, they didn't see it specifically. They didn't know exactly what was happening, but they knew something sketchy at best, illegal at worst was happening in Enron. But Enron was so big and made them so much money because they were one of the people that they're supposed to be this unbiased third party that, you know, rates the stock prices, risk factors of stocks for a company. And then, you know, then it is sold at stock market for the price that this accounting firm says it is worth. 
So they kind of have a vested interest in Enron doing well because then they get a little bit of a fee off the top of that for doing that. And so they didn't want to lose them. They didn't say anything. They were kind of hoping that the equity fund would get shut down by the one of the executives on the board. But since Sterling had already implemented this cult mentality at Enron, nobody wanted to go against the grain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're like, oh, we'll hold out until someone does. And then no. No, nobody Just said no. anything. And it's like. Because he fostered a bunch of people pleasers. He did. Man. He, For him only. The Ronald himself was sycophants and then kind of brainwashed them in weird toxic work environment and also weird trips. I guess yes men is better than mm. people pleasers, I should say. Yeah, this is a little past people, <laughs> people pleasing. Well, I was like, a people pleaser for one specific person, that's just a yes man. It is. And the thing with it is, is that, like, these people are ex- They're high up in this company, they're familiar with this industry, they've worked in this industry for years, they know this place. This is not, like, a gray area kind of a thing. This is illegal, and they all knew it. So the Enron lie worked for a long time. Harvard Business School uh, wrote multiple case studies praising Enron's business model, and Enron was named the country's most innovative company by a Fortune magazine six years in a row. They're really faking it till they make it, like to the extreme. Enron would pay hundreds of millions of dollars in fees to investment banks, and this is kind of goes back to the Arthur Anderson thing, the bank analysts would then kind of feel pressured to promote Enron's stock as a must-buy because Enron gave them so many millions of dollars in fees. Oh, business. Technically not bribery, but also kind of have a vested interest, so it's a little hinky. Hmm. And these, these banks were supposed to be independent, but analysts could actually be fired for not pushing Enron because it would mean so much more money for their company. Not Enron, but them. They are biased. <laughs> biased. This made Enron essentially untouchable. No one wanted to go against the grain and say that Enron stock wasn't worth what they were pushing. And then the, the executives realized this and kind of had this very arrogant attitude that trickled down to the rest of the company, making an already very toxic work environment even more toxic, which we love. And again, the culture tended to silence dissent, like we saw with voting unanimously to accept Bastow from the Code of Ethics, and also promote unethical and often illegal behavior. So now it's not just the board of executives, it's kind of just It's everybody. literally like, if he jumps off the cliff, will you? And the answer is yes. <laughs> literally. Yeah. If skill is up, everybody says how high. That is the company that he's they will literally jump off a cliff. An actual cliff, because they're a he's like, I'm an adrenaline junkie, I want everyone to do this shit. They might have done base jumping at one of those trips. I don't know. But yeah. And I want to be clear, like, the people on the bottom rung do not have any idea what's going on. They're doing what they're told. They're trying not to get fired. But the people in the upper management, the people on the executive board, absolutely know what is going on. They know things are not good. They know because they're selling their stocks quietly in the background before shit hits the fan. Credit rating agencies will, will give companies a grade on how well they pay back their corporate debts. We kind of talked about this with Arthur Anderson earlier. Uh, these grades go from AAA all the way down to D, 
based on ability to pay back debt. Theoretically, that's what this grading system looks like. A rating of triple B minus and up is considered safe to invest in. So then people who advise people on investing in the stock market will tell you to invest in these safe to invest in companies because they probably won't go bankrupt because they know how to pay their debts is the theory. The theory, but in reality. <laughs> these, these ratings are meant to be unbiased and as accurate as possible, but we know it's not the case with Enron. And since these credit rating companies deemed Enron a safe investment, people invested. In August 2000, the stock was at $90 a share and the company was worth nearly $70 billion. The worth is subjective. That doesn't mean they had $70 billion. No, 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 no. You know, when you look at all those things where it's like, this person is worth this much money, and then the like, person from the like, it goes, mm. it's literally just like shot in the dark, maybe this much. They just open their, someone's like, oh, you're worth $6 million, and they just open their wallet, and there's $6 million in cash. In February of 2001, Jeff Skilling finally became CEO of Enron, even though he'd really been running it for years. He finally got what Kinder had always wanted. Oh. Lay had mostly been spending his working days shopping for private planes and decorating his many homes. Material girl! Material girl. I'm shopping for a private plane. LOL. Like, okay. <laughs> All right. As CEO, Skilling's first move was to announce that Enron wasn't satisfied being the world's leading energy company, but he wanted them to be the world's leading company. Just in general. In the same month, Arthur Anderson had a meeting to discuss whether or not they should keep Enron as a client. Because remember, they're kind of taking bribes from them to say that their stock rating is good. And Enron, they knew Enron was not worth what they were claiming, that Anderson would get as much as $100 million in fees if they kept working with Enron. Just by working with Enron, saying their stock was worth such and such amount, they would get over $100 million in fees as profit for them. So they kept Enron. They were just too much of a moneymaker to lose. Even though they kind of knew eventually the shit was going to hit the fan, I wondered if they were thinking, well, maybe we can milk this for a few more months and then call it. There really isn't a lot of, like, future vision with this. It's like, let's keep us afloat right now, right now, right now, right now. Right. And then, like, the extended future is just, it's future problem. It really is. I think that's kind of an issue in my opinion with someone who's not very familiar with the stock market. With the stock market in general is that there's a very now view even though it's like you'd think people would be a little bit, because the stock is about what it's worth now, what it's worth later. There seems to only be a focus on now. Too much focus. Because uh, if, any, if you know anything about the 2000 uh, stock market, you would know that the dot-com bubble burst that year. Or sorry, 2001. Mm -hmm. So before this, you know, dot-com was taking off. What that means is, you know, it's the internet boom. Everybody wants a piece. And investors, you know, were investing, investing, investing. These small startup companies were getting millions in capital. And then the bubble burst. 
and investors lost billions on internet companies. At first, Enron stock didn't drop with everybody else. So they kind of became this example of a future economy because they seemed to have survived this. But in 2001, a little bit later in the year, Fortune Magazine reporter Bethany McLean started asking questions. She was like, why didn't their stock drop, though? They were in the internet. They were into the dot-com stuff. But she was essentially bullied by Skilly for asking very basic questions about how Enron made their money. Oh, of course, because he's not he's going to say, I'm going to go on the counterattack here. I'm going to be aggressive, like all you know how people when they get cornered in something, just get mad and start yelling because if you're louder, it's better that. Yes, he's gaslight gatekeeper girl boss. He is literally gaslight girl boss gatekeeper. Girl, what's the word? Girl boss, gas, gaslight girl boss gatekeeper. Andy Fasto and some other accounting exes executives came to meet with Bethany to explain all the financial aspects of Enron to her. I have to imagine this was a bit of a mansplaining meeting. Literally, scratch his head. She didn't say it was, but I feel like it was. The end of this interview, Andy Fasto said to her, quote, I don't care what you write about the company, just don't make me look bad, unquote. Because he only cares about himself. But one reminder, this is the man who is embezzling millions of dollars from Enron at this exact time. I think that's very exactly. interesting that he's like, you can write whatever you want, but don't write about me. And I'm like, isn't the company kind of a reflection of you? Like, what is that? Buddy, what does that mean? Like, you're still getting to coverage. No, because it's not his fault. Him like, I could never do that. Yeah. No, and it's like, where are you getting this money? Because I know they don't just have the money on hand. It's truly like a, it really makes you realize that money is a concept. Also, for those keeping track, speaking of money as a concept, at this time, Enron was actually $30 billion in debt, and Andy Festo was hiding it. $30 billion is fuck you money. I'm not even really able to comprehend. So investors in Enron really had, generally had no questions as long as the money kept coming in. No more money? Now we have some questions. Now there are some issues going, that are going to arise. <laughs> Enron was still reeling from the failure of Enron Broadband, as well as some other ventures. Remember the broadband thing that failed spectacularly? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. Wonderful. This meant lots of debt. I couldn't hide all of it. This was a bad time for extra scrutiny for Enron. Investors began to take a closer look at Enron and wondered if it was really worth all the hype. He's doing so well. In March of that year, Skilling's and CEO, about a month, Fortune Magazine Ooh. finally publishes Bethany McLean's article titled, Is Enron Overpriced? And this is where the facade begins to crack. Because our girl Bethany knows, she smells, she knows a rat when she smells one. Let's go, Bethany. Short sellers who are investors who bet against a certain company. So short selling as a whole is an investment activity in which the investor borrows securities and sells them in hopes of purchasing securities at a lower rate in the future, basically betting that the company's stock will fall. That's what they do. They started to look into 
and discovered a lot of what we already know. They started to realize that Enron was generating very little profit and had massive debts, and their worth was greatly over-exaggerated. Exploding, imploding, really, within itself. Enron's decline was exponential and fast. Interesting. It is imploding. At first, it was kind of difficult to see a problem, but then everything kind of just went down all at once. By the end of March, not Jesus. even two months, two months since CPO, by Ooh. the end of March, the price, the stock price had dropped from $79 at the start of 2001 to $58. It had dropped $21 within a month. Or, sorry, within two, three months. I could say some of that maybe were, maybe the result of the dot-com bubble burst. Yeah. Not all of it. $30, a $30 drop. Most companies will fluctuate between like a dollar in value within three months, unless something like happens. In April, a conference call following Enron's first quarter earnings release occurred, when which investors are come and are encouraged to ask questions, things like that. A short seller asked to see a balance sheet. Ooh. Scaling tried to avoid this question, but the short seller pointed out that Enron was the only financial institute unable or unwilling to provide a balance sheet with their earnings release. So if you thought though, like, oh, why would they provide a balance sheet? Very normal to provide a balance sheet at these certain Get them. Get them. Scaling in a live call with investors, clients, employees, called this short seller an asshole. Of course, because when he's backed into a corner, what is he going to do? Former CEO Lay was horrified because he was in this call too. He's showing his true colors yeah, though. This, this is who you know who this guy is. And Ron's PR team, because this is a huge company, of course they have a PR team, begged Skilling to apologize and he ignored them. Does he sound like another billionaire we know? Insert any billionaire's name here. Because he's been alpha male that refuses to go back on his words or apologize for anything he's done. It's always moving forward. It is the present, not the past, not the future, the present. It's all about the now. I apologize. I'm weak. That's something in a beta male would do. Alpha. <laughs> it is all about the present. It was at this point that Skilling seemed to start showing the cracks. He regularly would show up to work unshaved and unkempt. There was the whole asshole incident, which is not exactly CEO behavior, or at least it shouldn't be. He would spend his free time smoking and drinking white wine. I don't know why it was white wine specifically. By himself in Houston bars. What a goofy little detail. Goofy little detail. Man does not like a red. <laughs> He's really out here like, I did not take a shower. I did not shave. And I'm spending my time drinking white wine, which like... I'm not a wine person, but I'm like, wine? Wouldn't you? That's not very, like, alpha male of you. Wouldn't you go for, like, a whiskey or a bourbon or something if you're really going through it? Fake alpha male. Also in a bar. I mean, like, at a bar, still. Also in a bar, not in this house. This man's supposed to be uber rich. Why are you drinking in bars? Wouldn't you drink at home your nice fancy <laughs> one? Maybe because he's like, I want people to feel bad for me. Maybe. At, at this point, people who knew him suspected that he had depression, which honestly, I think he did. He probably did because he was probably realizing that everyone, everything was going to shit. In August of 2001, same year, 
he announced that he was resigning as CEO of Enron. Six months after accepting the position. Because that tells you how well he did. His explanation was that he was quitting, quote, personal But in his belief that the truth was he couldn't handle the stock price dropping so dramatically, and I think he knew the company that he had built was fraudulent and it had finally caught up to him. You know, his fear of getting caught of everyone realizing the truth is just every day. You know, I think he thought that when the the bubble burst and people discovered the extent of the fraud, he maybe wouldn't get the the brunt of the blame if he wasn't CEO at that time. So I think he's hoping to, like, step back and hope that other people take the fall when it... Because at this point, I think he knew it was all but a certainty that people were going to figure it out as soon. It's all about trying to... He's trying to get a scapegoat in there. Lay would, at this point, take back over as CEO while Enron's stock continued to drop. I'm not sure if it was, like, Lay still had this rose rose glasses view of what the company could be. Or if he was hoping to swoop in and save the day. It makes me wonder how much he actually understood about the truth of the situation. Because knowing what I know about this company, honestly, knowing what I know about this company, I would not be CEO. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, what does he know about what Fasto is doing? Probably not. I mean, he knows he's hiding the bad debt. I think he knows that. Probably not the embezzlement. Although, the embezzlement's really more on Fasto than it. Around this time, an Enron Vice President Sharon Watkins, so she's on the executive board, looked over Enron's assets to determine what could be dumped to make the company quit quick cash because they need to start paying back these debts. She discovered accounting fraud on an unprecedented scale. I think a lot of the executives like were willfully blind, I think, to a lot of this. Were kind of aware that something was lost. But didn't look into it because if they looked into it, they would, like, on some level knew if they looked into it, they would know how bad it was and, like, couldn't ignore it. Which I think explains why it is at this point somebody else. They're, like, out of sight, out of mind. Exactly. She realized that Enron was doomed and immediately started. That's kind of goofy to be like, oh, I know it's going to be an issue, but I'm not going to look Exactly. It's all about the now, Anna. It's not about the later. Oh, you're right. They were just like, that's for future me to worry about. I don't give a shit. She realized that Enron was doomed and started interviewing at other companies immediately. Good for her. Get out. Once at Watkins had left, she wrote a seven-page letter to Lay detailing exactly what she had found and warned that it would only be a matter of time before it was all brought out in the open and that Lay should clean this shit up as soon and as quietly as possible before someone blew the whistle and people went to jail. I love it. Good for her. The thing is, I don't know why she didn't blow the whistle. I Maybe because she was worried that her executive position at the company meant she might be found helpful. But I feel like if you bring it, like you're less likely to get in trouble. Not really sure. What do you think? Based on what we've said about Lay, what do you, what do you think he did with this information? Um, as someone with a not alpha male, uh, I don't have an alpha male mindset, so I don't get it, but I think it's essentially like, is that an issue? Mm, oh, well, you know, I'll do so, you know, I'll do, let me just, um, we'll do something in a bit, but like, you know, mm. 
Just lots of non-answers. It's also interesting. I don't believe Skilling was no longer CEO, but I believe he was still at the company, and she did not go to him. She went to Lay. Interesting note. Lay, as some of you may have guessed, waved off her concern. He's delusional. <laughs> and Watkins, being one of the few executives at Enron who had encouraged the company to act responsibly, now gone. I will say, there is, like, he's delu Lay is delusional. And Watkins is kind of interesting because at this point, there is such a cult mentality at Enron. The fact that almost the kind of the fact that she spoke up at all is kind of weird. It's pretty rare for someone to speak out against their own institution. And the level of mob think that is going on in Enron in the executive board right now and the success of the company to the outside world must have made it so difficult to speak up. So I can understand why she waited until, first of all, absolutely understand why she waited until she had another job to say anything probably for fear of retaliation but like why she didn't you know you can anonymously blow a whistle i don't know so at this point reporters are beginning to circle and by now the outside of the company had figured out that something was happening within the walls of Enron, but had no idea the extent of it They'd started to root out the relationship between Enron and Andy Festo's private equity fund. Uh-oh. Enron's leadership continued to pretend that everything was just fine. You know that dog in a house on fire meme? <laughs> this is fine. Everything's fine. This is fine. This is fine. Yeah, we're totally good. Everything's burning around us. But we'll be Hi. Lay again reassured employees that everything was back on track and urged them to continue to purchase and talk up Enron stock. Employees would lose over $2 billion doubling down in stock as they were told to by their CEO, while Lay secretly dumped all of his Enron stock and collected tens of millions of dollars. Of mm. course, because that made him more money because not everyone just dumped everything at the same time because they were putting up a facade. Exactly. In October of 2001, still the same year. This is all going down the same year. Oh my god. They had no choice but to report a $1 billion loss. The first time they'd ever reported a loss. Rough. And it was a billion dollars. A billion and dollars, they, though? They tried to, like, lay it down and kind of gaslight everybody and say it was a, quote, non-recurring charge well that's uh, a billion dollars don't worry about a it a billion dollars and uh nobody bought that oh for it a small loss of a billion dollars small loss of a billion dollars immediately afterward immediately afterward the wall street journal published a scathing article keep in mind this is the same journal that had been praising it around not a couple of years before criticizing enron's relationship with andy fausto's private equity so they were like, not only did you have to report a loss, we know about this fund. At this point, I think people knew there was something sketchy going on, but they didn't know like exactly what was happening. They just knew it was bad. Because if they knew exactly what was happening, people would have already been going to jail because this is illegal. At this point, like this was news. This was all over everybody. Andy Fasto's own brother read the article and then emailed Andy saying that he knew there was no way it could be true because if Andy had really made millions of dollars this way, there's no way he would allow his brother to keep driving a seven-year-old Toyota Camry. 
That's that's the reason. A hilarious response. That's a sibling response. I honestly think he truly didn't believe it and was trying to like make light of it. Danny to be like, come on, man, there's no way. You're fine. You wouldn't do that to your brother if you did. If you made if you embezzled money, you'd share it. Oh my god. Apparently not. The so at this point the SEC, the US Securities and Exchange Commission began a formal investigation into Enron. And while their stock prices continued to all of this, I fucked that up. So the SEC, the US Securities and Equities Commission, now began a full oh sorry, no, that was wrong. At this point, the SEC, the US Securities and Exchange Woo! Commission, now began a formal inquiry into Enron, all while their stock freaking finally plummet. Even Enron's own employees finally seem to break their conditioning and ask some questions. Which is funny because I will remind you that Enron's like slogan at this time was to ask why. Now we're asking why. They begin to ask questions about just how much Fasto had pocketed through this private equity. Because like he's taking people's salaries, people's retirement funds, people's 401ks, essentially. One employee even asked Lay if he was smoking crack. I would as well. Legit question, were you doing cocaine? On the one hand, yes, because this man is a doctor who should know, of economics, who should know how the economy works and should be knowing how to run a business. (laughs) But also on a more serious level, there's a certain amount of like alpha dude bro, were you doing cocaine? I think Skilling at some point (laughs) did cocaine. I did this once at a frat party, and I will do I it again. Lay, but I, and I have no evidence to support this, but I do feel like Skilling seems like the kind of guy who would do cocaine, at least for the thrill of it, you know? CFO Andy Festo had avoided, up till now, telling anyone, even at Enron, just how much he had given himself through these private equity dealings. Because he's still CFO of the company. When the chairman of the Board of Compensation Committee finally pressed Festo to tell him, Bando, Bando, Fasto admitted to taking, I want you to guess, I want you to guess, hmm. and took, I don't know if I want to, $54 million. Bro! Rich people Jesus are so funny. Christ. Why do they do that? Or, sorry, business people, rich business people oh, are very no. funny. Didn't even buy another a new car with that money. What was he doing with he's it? He's doing it for himself because he's selfish. I imagine that he, I know that's not the case. I imagine him saying, uh, he's Gore. got his board. Like a drag, like Smaug or Scrooge McDuck. Oh my god. In truth, it was, the amount was closer to $60 million. Jeez. That cell would be placed on a leave of absence the next day. Arthur Anderson, we've talked a little bit about this so far, one of the big five major accounting agencies of the time provided these auditing services to Enron. And Arthur Anderson's in-house lawyer, Nancy Temple, knew that if Enron went down, it was going to take them with it. And now that there is an official inquiry into Enron, we gotta cover she's like, ass. oh, shit. Because remember, he knew, and they talked at the beginning of this year about dropping Enron as a client, but they were making millions off of them. So they were like, okay, let's hope God. for the best here. 
She advised her bosses at Arthur. Because it's all about the now and not about the future consequences. Exactly. But here they are, those future consequences in the now. She advised her bosses at Enron. Arthur. She advised her bosses. She advised her bosses at Arthur Anderson to shred any documents that might look bad in court because nothing says innocence like, hey, I'm just going to shred hundreds of millions of pieces of paper really fast. Really fast? Oh, our recycling of paper didn't go up. No. no. All those records that are missing, completely not, you know, important. Over one metric ton of paper Jesus. was shredded and nearly 30,000 emails deleted. My God. Except you can you can recover. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Electronic trail is much easier to recover than a paper trail. This was two thousand, so the technology for recovery wasn't mm. what it is today. But you could still recover. That tells you a little bit about just how deep this went and how much it was clear that they knew what the fuck was going on at Enron. The shredding only stopped when the SEC officially served Arthur Anderson with a subpoena meaning that they had to produce all documents relevant to the SEC's investigation. Oh so my god. I hate that. Heck, it's not illegal to shred these papers until you're served and told to stop. Which is why they knew it was coming. They knew this was coming. Maybe even got tipped off. I don't know. So they were like, oh shit, we got it. We got it. We got to do this now. The SEC's formal inquiry into Enron was now a formal investigation. I'm not entirely certain what the difference between an inquiry and investigation is. I think it's like, I'm just going to probe. It's like one oh, toe in versus in just stepping in entirely. Exactly. Enron's stock now plummeted to less than $10 a share. That is a catastrophic plummet. Remember, a year ago, they were $90 a share. Jesus! <laughs> Moody's, which was a like credit rating company, downgraded Enron to just one level above junk status. Because all this shit is catching up. This is karma. Everything that they did before is just catching just up to them. So fast. This was in, within one year, just like everything. The dominoes, they start going. It implodes. It's just like. Oh my God. Crazy. It's literally the foundation that was shitty is crumbling and the entire building's coming down because of it. So at this point, Dynergy Incorporated, a longtime rival, agreed to actually acquire Enron, the company, to save everybody. I don't know why they thought that was a good idea, but they saw an opportunity and they were like, oh yeah, we'll take that off your hands. But in November, the results of the internal investigation were announced. The results showed that Enron, again, still 2001, by the way. The results showed that Enron had around $9 billion in debt that it would have to pay off by 2002. Oh my god. <laughs> Total debt. Just the stuff that had to get paid off by the next year. And they're not going to be able to do that. No. Total debt? Does anyone want to guess what the total debt was? Okay, wait. So the initial debt was that they had to pay off immediately. Yes, $9 billion. Can you? Oh my god billions my head already hurts at the thought of having a lot of millions oh my god i wish i had that much in my bank account 50 billion that feels not i don't think he's that much but i also go i don't know because he has twitter now 
pretty close. That's actually higher. It was $38 billion. Dynergy backed out of the acquisition November 28, 2001, after these deaths came to light. Because if you buy this company, you assume they're debts. Sure. Sure. Yeah, and that is just, no one's going to no. go for that now. Analyst credit rating was officially downgraded to junk status, and the stock dropped to less than a dollar. Oh my god. <laughs> <sighs> Imagine being... Sunday, December 2nd, 2001, Enron filed for bankruptcy. This whole thing went down in under a year. This was the largest corporate bankruptcy in U.S. history at the time. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. It was bad. Because the next day, Monday, December 3rd, 2001, was known as Black Monday. Employees received a voicemail from Kenley himself asking that they come into the office regardless of the bankruptcy, regardless of anything. Employees were told that their most recent paychecks would be their last and that they no longer had a job 22 days before Christmas. God. Oh, my God. New York needs a break. Everybody take a nap in fucking New York. Also, keep in mind, I feel like it should be mentioned, 9-11 happened a couple months before this. A lot of this went down in New York. Like, there's... Like, they had, like, a huge office in New York on Wall Street, and now these people don't. Like, New York is still built, rebuilding. They already have these... Like, these people have been to enough. Oh. That's so bad. After being told, these employees, not only did they not have a job, they had been told again and again by Enron to invest in the company. So most employees had little or nothing left in their 401k as a result. It's so bad. People walk, there's like, there's a doc, there's a really good documentary that I'm going to call out later here that has footage because reporters at this point we'd already talked about, we're kind of outside of the building trying to get quotes from people because they knew something was going on, especially now. And people on this Monday after this announcement was made just put all their stuff in boxes and walked out of the building en masse. There's video footage of just Enron employees in suits and ties because these are Wall Street folks just walking out being like, we don't have jobs anymore. That's so bad. That's so bad. Horrible. In one year, everything had gone to shit. Not even a year. Imagine you got hired like a like a little bit more than a year ago, and you're like, oh, like I got this really great job, this really great company that's like moving up in the world. It's like one of the top companies, and then everything just goes like a month into you working, it just implodes. But the uh, the executives didn't really seem concerned by the bankruptcy. They flew to New York City for a bankruptcy court here on a corporate jet worth forty five million dollars, and stayed in the Four Seasons hotel suite. The most out-of-touch BS for people who had just told a bunch of people that they had no job anymore and no 401k. Arthur Anderson and the security analysts blamed Enron. Enron blamed Arthur Anderson. No one wants to take the fall for this. It's everybody's fault, but Arthur Anderson should absolutely face some culpability for knowing that this stock was not safe to invest in and saying it was anyway. The SEC dug into Enron's accounts deeply, and their deception in full was made public. Hmm. Arthur Anderson was actually found guilty of destroying evidence because they, it, it's technically not illegal, but it is, it's illegal. 
But due to flawed jury instruction, the Supreme Court overturned the conviction. This kind of goes back to in a previous corporate greed episode. We've kind of talked about culpability of a company versus yeah. individuals before. And it's difficult to say that the entire company. Because again, like the company has a person's name, but it's a company. Yeah. And there's a lot of people who work under that company. So it's really hard to yeah. pinpoint who was doing what under the umbrella. Mm -hmm. So technically, Arthur Anderson was found not guilty. But practically, they were done. These kinds of businesses and companies are run purely on their reputation as a unbiased and accurate source of stock price information. The trust was gone. There are well, five big accounting firms. And now, today, there are four. Enron took Arthur Anderson down with them. The banks that enabled Enron's deception and profited from it paid a few million dollars to the SEC in fees, and then went back to business as usual. It's kind of like when McDonald's got sued for giving that woman third-degree burns for coffee, and then they were eventually charged with uh, one day's worth of coffee in terms of fees. And it's like, yeah, but th that means nothing to people. Oh, yeah, and the woman got slammed in the media. That is a whole <laughs> thing. That's a whole other story. That's a story for another time. But it's, it kind of says like, yeah. The only way to really punish these companies is through financial means, but like you need to punish, you have to make the punishment fit the crime. And millions of dollars sounds like a lot, but it honestly isn't, not to these people. And also, crimes are only illegal if you're poor. Just saying. 25 Enron executives would end up being charged, along with eight others who were not executives. Andy Fastow pleaded guilty and was sentenced to six years in prison. I don't know if they let him keep any of the money. Because six years in prison, that's not, that's nothing to see that, but also if you have millions of dollars waiting for you afterwards. Better hope you have someone good at wealth management looking it over. Mm-hmm. Lay and Skilling both refused to admit any wrongdoing, despite being the people piloting the boat. Ken Lay, Dr. Ken Lay, was found guilty on 10 charges, but would die of a heart attack before he could be sent. Which, I mean... He was an older man at this point, like the stress of this company imploding on itself had to, and also getting charged with seven different charges and being found guilty. That's got to be a lot, but also there's a little bit of like, oh, you kind of, in a, in a way, kind of got away without punishment. Jeff Skilling, kind of the real master behind, behind most of the Enron fraud, was fined $45 million. Jesus! <laughs> Which, interestingly, the price of the plane. I don't know if that was on purpose or not. And sentenced to 24 years yeah. in prison. Yeah. It's important to note we don't know what Lay would have been sentenced to if he had lived. So I, there's not really anything to really compare Jeff's sentence to because there's not really anyone else that has the same level of he culpability. He just got away with it. But also, right? Lay and Skilling did not accept plea deals, and usually if you don't accept a plea deal and you're found guilty, your sentence is longer. That's kind of the point of the plea deal. Skilling actually only served 12 years of, in prison, so he's out now. Jeez. Mm, interesting. What's he doing now? And as of 2020, as of 2020, he's looking for investors in a new energy marketing place. No one is biting. Also, I think they 
stated as part of his release, he's never allowed to be CEO of a trading company again. <laughs> I don't know why that's so funny. Uh, Incredible. Funny. They put a picture. They put a picture of his face on the wall. Like, do not let him be CEO again. Do not let him be CEO. Makes me think of like um. I know there's some it's like an occasion that says do not feed. We'll buy it and do not make CEO. Do not make fraud. CEO. It makes me think of like some. I know Asian stores will do this. I know in Massachusetts they do, where it's like they'll have photos of customers and they'll be like, "Do not serve this one. Do not let this one back in. They're banned." And I'm like, "Bro, he's he is on the wall of people. They should not make CEO again. That's so funny." Not that guy. Fuck that you guy. You know the like with the bullpen to the stock market exchange on Wall Street. Outside of that, it's like a picture. Can I like like do not let in? Do not let him in. I repeat, do not let this man in. That's really funny. Can you imagine fucking up so bad? They're like, uh-uh. You're not in this business anymore, buddy. Mm -mm. Never again. Like, okay, you can... I keep forgetting. I know it's, like, somewhere in the billions, but, like, having a debt that big, like, billion, one billion is billion? enough to make my head explode. $38 billion. Yeah. Like, one billion is already enough to make my head explode, but could you imagine be like, hey, guys, I got a little less than $50 billion to, like, pay the people back. Oopsie daisy. I would shit myself. I would like end it. I would be like, I'm about to end my family bloodline with me. See you later. Mm -mm. What was left of Enron was divided up among scavengers. And five years after filing for bankruptcy, the bankruptcy. The I like how it sounds like a corpse that the vultures come. And it, it honestly is. Five years after filing for bankruptcy, the comp the company was completely dissolved. In 2002, Congress would pass the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, which protected investors by improving the accuracy of corporate disclosures. A direct response to Enron and similar corporate accounting scandals of the time. Love it when you do you fuck up so bad they have to make a rule about what you did, so no one can do it again. The effectiveness of this legislation is kind of debatable. The 2007 to 2008 economic crisis was partially driven by the same sort of schemes that fueled Enron, so some have made the argument that this act was not, didn't do its job. Great! Copycats, we love them. And there are also parts of this debate say there may be no perfect way to prevent scams. Scammers gonna scam, they're always gonna find new and innovative ways to cheat the system. Everyone so there's... will find a loophole if there is one, and if you don't know there's a loophole, then mm, you're wrong. Because you haven't found it yet. Some other players of note that I haven't really talked- There are so many people in this stage, on the stage, there are so many pieces of this that we didn't really get into. But uh, some people here are Cliff Baxter, who was the chief dealmaker at Enron. He actually did commit suicide when the news broke, and was also oh said to be impressive. But also, I think it was, yeah, it was, I think, just one of those things, like, he couldn't handle, like, everything just oh. coming down. So that is unfortunate that that did happen, although I will say, like, he was likely somebody who complicit directly, oh my directly God. complicit in it, very much so in the mark-to-market accounting portion of it, of kind of lying about how much money they were making. It is still unfortunate that happened. I will say... His suicide likely was the re partially the result of him believing, whether truthfully or not, that he would be facing jail time oh. for his actions. Okay. 
So some people make a some people make a call. There was also Lou Pai who was he's just avoiding getting the exactly. punishment for his crime. There was also Lou Pai who was CEO of Enron Energy Services. Man. He was said to be motivated by money and strippers. Strippers. Oh my god. He's like money women. Money women. Sounds like a rapper. Apparently very well known for his love of strippers. Was a cutthroat businessman, literally with Skilling's ideal businessman. He got out before shit hit the fan. He divorced his wife and married the stripper who'd by this point had his child. Somebody didn't follow the no touching the strippers rule. Rut row. Uh, he sold all <laughs> he sold all of his stock, got out of Enron with a cool two hundred and fifty million dollars. That is more money than they uh find oh, for for all okay. Um more than anybody. He did the best in terms of like getting out of here unscathed and with a problem. And with a stripper wife on his arm. He became with a stripper, stripper wife on his arm. You know what? Good for her. I'm gonna say it. Good for her. She's scared herself. That's down. true. That's true. I will I will give her that because it's like easy I don't know if it's easy money, but you know what I mean. Yeah. He became the second largest landowner in Colorado. I don't know if that is still true, that this was in the early 2000s. And when he left, the divisions he law when the le- he left- He came out net positive. He did. On all fronts. Uh, when, he, when he left, they lost about a billion dollars, which, of course, Enron hid from the public. I'm not really sure what that was about, but he left as CEO, and then suddenly they- we're missing a billion dollars. I don't think they he took it. I think he was just maybe hiding debt. And then when he left, they were, he was like, oh, by the way, here's the IOU for a billion dollars and just kind of like threw it in the room and then ran out. <laughs> yeah. And what you'll recall way, way, way back when in part one that Enron had a lot of connections in the White House. Dr. Lace specifically had a lot of connections in the White House. So when Enron went down, there was some speculation if there was any political scandal, as they had been a big contributor to George W. Bush's first campaign. And George Bush even had to come out and say that I, he, quote, did not have financial relations with that man. I knew you were going to do it! (laughs) Did not have financial relations with that man. So our three, but our three main baddies, Lay, Festo, and Skilling, saw justice in some way. 20,000 employees lost their jobs, all told, and $2 billion in pension and retirement funds disappeared. There, to just wrap this up, there is so much more to the story than what I could cover here. This is already two parts. This, as a recording, it's about an hour and 20 minutes. We'll see what it is when I cut it down. I definitely recommend looking at the documentary they've done in this called The Smartest Guys in the Room. It's free on Amazon Prime. It's almost two hours long, and it has a lot of the people who were involved in taking Enron down sitting in for interviews. It's really interesting. It's really informative. They really do a good job of, like, keeping the tension of, like, what it must have been like to be in Enron at that time, to be, try to crack this down, figure out what's going on, following the money. But yeah, that's what I have for you. So much debt. 
so much lying and scamming all the way from the beginning. It's kind of crazy because, like, Enron was dead and buried before we were even, like, in kindergarten. And it's so crazy to think about how it kind of shapes the economy today, not only in the congressional acts that came out of the result of it, but also I have to wonder how many people maybe took uh, a page out of Enron's book when it came to the 2007-2008 crash. Definitely sounds like at least a few people were doing similar scams. I don't know how many people were trying to pull an Enron directly. Uh, but yeah, and what I really feel bad for is the employees who gave up years of their lives to this company. You know, had this weird, creepy, cutthroat environment just trying to get somewhere in this industry. Being told by everyone outside of it that they were at the best company for the industry. And then they had to put up with all of this. Only to not even get their retirement funds and to get cut just before Christmas. There's something about that that just makes it so much worse. God, that is so sick and twisted. But yeah, that's what, that's what I have for you for Enrola. Thank you so much for listening. Please don't scam people out of millions of dollars. Please. Pretty please. Don't embezzle, guys. And also, don't create such a toxic work environment that people feel the need to do drastic things, probably base jumping, probably bungee jumping, flipping a jeep, almost dying. Yeah. Please be normal in the business environment. You business majors are crazy enough as is, but oh guess my what? god. Teamwork does oh make us think about it is that there, this company and everything that happened reads like an evil big business corporation in like a hallmark movie it's actually saw you know this is the company that the girl leaves when she goes to like <laughs> the small town to meet the like local beggar and her like boyfriend is a skilling type babe why won't you come back to the big city where me and the boys nearly kill each other Babe, come also, back. if you uh, are in those circles and you see someone named Jeffrey Skilling asking for you to invest in a new energy uh, company he has, don't. Maybe don't. <laughs> Just, Just say no. Generally, I am a believer in learning from our mistakes and moving forward, but uh, I wouldn't put that man in charge of anything. Yeah. Yeah, thank you all so much for listening. This was a long one. I... Thanks for stopping by. Oh yeah, by the way, our table, which was on the third floor of Enron, um, somebody else uh, took over the uh, lease. So now it's just like a different office. It's very chill. The HR company is very good about getting benefits. People are actually getting work done. It's a much more chill office. Yippee! Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye! 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 Bye.